I said when I got the text from Pastor Ryan asking if I could preach here, I responded in like 10 minutes. I said, yes, I would love to. I love the, the hunger for God's word that I have sensed as I've been here. I love what the Lord is doing here. And uh, I love your pastor as well. I, he, he stands out to me as uh, someone who is uniquely eager to help other pastors. He has a full plate as a pastor, many responsibilities, but he's great at getting back to me, at giving excellent advice, and I, I continue to lean on your pastor uh, to help us at Mosaic Community in Joliet. So I'm grateful. And I also, he's a unique combination of a strong leader and very fun-loving. Sometimes they're real fun-loving and not as strong. Sometimes they're real strong, not as fun-loving. And he kind of, he's a nice balance of that. So um, let's go ahead and, uh, well, actually, before we pray, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 15, if you want to open up your Bibles, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. And let's pray. God, we love you. We want to be still before you right now, Lord. We want to still our hearts and not just enter into a ritual of prayer. We want to recognize that we have access to Almighty God who is from everlasting to everlasting. God, we praise you that you hear us because of our great high priest, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would come now and manifest your presence for the rest of this service. Protect us from the evil one. I pray that every heart would be tender and eager to lean into your truth and hear all that you have. I pray that you would remove every distraction. I pray that you would be specific with each and every person, God. We pray that these would not just be words, but God, that you would speak, that your voice would be heard, and that you would awaken fresh faith. Let us see you, Jesus, for who you are. And I pray that you would use me as your vessel of grace this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, back in 1907, the Chicago Cubs won their first World Series. And in the very next year, 1908, they did it again. But then drought set in. Nothing in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 90s. And then in 2003, it looked like the Cubs were going to win. And then 
a fan stepped in, or at least some say so, and it's on, on a critical play anyway, it didn't happen that year either. No go. The movie Back to the Future predicted that in 2015, the Chicago Cubs would win the World Series. And in 2015, if you remember, it looked like they might win and then no go again. And many believed that the Chicago Cubs would never win the World Series. But then the very next year in 2016, 108 years of drought, the Cubs proved their dissenters wrong and won it all. The news was instantly global. People were thrilled. Celebration was out of this world. And, and when, it, when it came time to celebrate in Chicago, the crowds were massive. To give you an idea, within the city limits of Chicago, there's 2.7 million people. And they estimate that about 5 million people showed up in Chicago to celebrate this victory. Fans came from everywhere. Why? Because they wanted to enter into the joy of the moment. People were saying things like, well, first of all, they called this the celebration of the century right here in Chicagoland. People said things like, there are so many emotions, it's hard to put into words. Someone else said, I can't think of a better place to be than right here. Someone else said, this is an out-of-this-world experience. It's once in a lifetime. Now I have a question. Have you ever wondered what makes heaven celebrate like that? What is it that gathers the masses in heaven? What is it that awakens shouts of joy throughout God's heavenly kingdom? I'll tell you what it is. The Bible is very clear on this. Every single time a sinner repents and enters into salvation, heaven celebrates. Listen, in heaven, sports, they're so-so. But when a sinner gets saved, heaven is filled with celebration. Joy fills their hearts and in the hearts of the heavenly community. Listen, here's the main thing I want to help you see from our passage today. Heaven celebrates over every single sinner that repents. And before we get into the passage, I just want to ask you, what is it that thrills your heart? What is it that you get excited for? Do you get thrilled when you learn about a sinner getting saved? Do you understand that 
the delight that you have in seeing a sinner get saved is directly related to the desire you will have in sharing the gospel and helping the lost come to Christ. There is a, a direct connection between your excitement to see sinners get saved and your engagement in doing the work of leading others to Christ. And if you've, if you've never received salvation in Jesus today, let me just let you know, God is eager for you to come. And heaven is waiting to celebrate your salvation. Let today be the day that you turn from your sin and surrender your life to Jesus. Now let, let's take a look at our passage, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. <coughs> Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Now, now just note their lack of joy. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now immediately we see two different groups gathered around Jesus. There's the tax collectors. These were the people who collected taxes for the Romans, who were the oppressors of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Uh, tax collectors were despised by their fellow Jews because they were serving the enemy. They were viewed as traitors and and literally people thought of tax collectors as thieves because they not only collected money for the Romans they added their own surcharges as much as they wanted to to fill their own pockets with fellow Jewish people's money they were hated tax collectors but there's also Sinners mentioned here. Now, the term sinners would certainly include tax collectors, but sinners more broadly refers to murderers, deceivers, thieves, and people who had dishonest professions. Now, you have to understand that in these times, tax collectors and sinners were excluded from the religious community. <clears throat> they, you, you can imagine if there was a gathering of people reading the Bible, of worshiping God, imagine a sign posted that says, no tax collectors and sinners, unwelcome. Now, it, they probably didn't want to go there anyway, but they weren't welcomed either. But what's interesting about the passage is these people, the tax collectors and the sinners, the very ones that the, the Bible people, the church people, the religious people didn't want around, these same people wanted to be close to Jesus. They wanted to hear him teach. 
I want to hear more from Jesus. And they wanted to sit down and eat with him. They actually wanted to hang out with Jesus. They felt welcomed by him. Now, Jesus welcomed the tax collectors and the sinners not to affirm their sin, but to wisely and lovingly lead them to repent of it. And I just want to ask you this morning, how welcome do worldly people feel around you? How welcome do the unchurched, unrighteous feel around you? Would gang members, would prostitutes, would drug dealers and drug users, would they feel welcomed in your homes? Would they desire to be around you or would they feel judged and condemned by you? Now, the Pharisees and the scribes present, they're not happy. The Bible says that they're grumbling. They're complaining in their hearts. Because why? Because Jesus is welcoming tax collectors and sinners. Who were the Pharisees? Well, they were the most influential Jewish sect during the time of Jesus. There were around 6,000 thousand Pharisees. These were the spiritual commandos of the age. They were lay leaders, so they weren't hired or paid. They were volunteer leaders, but they saw the compromise going on within Israel, and they despised it. So they rose up, and they meticulously sought to obey every commandment of the Bible, all 613 of them. But not only that, they had a whole slew of man-made traditions that they demanded others to obey as well. The Pharisees believed that God would favor them if they obeyed his commandments. And they found it easy to look down at other people who weren't as good at obeying as they were because they didn't deserve God's favor as the Pharisees thought they did through their obedience. Now, it's important to, to stop here and recognize The Pharisees are not in the Bible so we can look down at them self-righteously. The purpose of the Pharisees is not for us to wag our finger at them. No, it's actually for us to learn how not to be like them. But what's the truth? The truth is... We are all like Pharisees when we lose sight of the gospel. It's a natural sinful tendency within us. They just epitomize 
this. Let me give you five ways that I know that I'm acting like a Pharisee. Five ways I'm acting like a Pharisee. Number one, I'm proud of my obedience. Rather than seeing my obedience as a gift from God, and this would be covered in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Romans 12, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But rather than seeing my obedience as a gift from God and being grateful to God for my obedience, I take credit for it. I boast about my obedience inwardly and sometimes it slips out and happens outwardly. I boast about how great I am at obeying God. I'm proud of my obedience. Number two, another way I'm acting like a Pharisee is when I'm proud that I'm better than you. When I notice that my entertainment choices are better than yours, that I'm a better listener than you, that I can avoid certain addictive substances that you can't seem to, that I'm more willing to help than others are. When I, when I recognize that I leave a better impression on people than you do, I, I celebrate this with feeling superior to you. I place my identity in being better than you at Christianity. I'm acting like a Pharisee when, number three, I exclude others in need of grace. When I encounter people who are socially awkward or who talk a lot, who have irritating habits, who are blatantly self-centered, I avoid them. I ignore them. I try to shame them. I won't say it out loud, but deep down I'm thinking they don't deserve my love. Number four, I'm acting like a Pharisee when I don't celebrate sinners coming to Jesus. When I hear someone just got saved, I could care less. Big deal. What else is new? I could care less. Or worse than that, I'm cynically suspicious of that person. And I'm troubled by the fact that they're going to start being around more. And here's the sneakiest one of them all. I'm acting like a Pharisee when, number five, I get irritated when others act like Pharisees. I grumble about Christians who think they're better than others. I grumble about Christians who are legalistic. I complain about Christians who are arrogant, who are rude, who are graceless. I feel justified in my irritation and hatred of them because that's what they deserve. They're acting like a Pharisee. All the while, I'm blind to the Pharisee within. Now, it's critical to recognize when pharisaical tendencies arise, 
so we can reject this attitude of heart and return afresh to Jesus. Now, I spent time explaining who the Pharisees were because the two parables Jesus is about to tell are meant to directly address their hearts toward the tax collectors and the sinners. Remember, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling regarding tax collectors and sinners. Look at verse 3. So he told them, the them is the Pharisees and the scribes, so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Meaning, those who don't think they need to repent. Verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God, listen, over one sinner who repents. Heaven celebrates over every single sinner that repents. Now, when we look at these parables, we notice multiple things. Uh, You see that both parables have owners. There's a man who owns 100 sheep, and there's a woman who owns 10 silver coins. What they own is valuable to them. The point is, God owns all humans. Out of all creation, we have been uniquely created in His image. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Every human is fundamentally valuable because God created us to image forth His reality. We are the visible representation of the character of God meant to display 
physically how great and glorious our invisible God is. He's the one who designed and put together our facial features, the tone of our skin, our muscle structure, our gender, our height, our personalities. Job 10.11 says, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Psalm 139.13 and 14, You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In both parables, we also see that what is valuable to the owner has been lost. The shepherd loses, out of the 100 sheep, one. And the woman loses, out of the 10 silver coins, one. Notice that the emphasis is placed on just the one that's lost. Now, without Jesus, we are all lost. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. God created us to follow him Moment by moment, every day of our lives, but because of our sin, we follow everything but God. We're lost. Warren Wearsby says, what does it mean to be lost? It means, like the sheep, to be away from safety and in a place of danger. Our lostness is the source of all suffering on earth. Matthew 9.36 When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is why we desperately need to return to God through faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.25 For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, in both parables, the owner is the one who seeks out the one that was lost. The one lost sheep and the one lost coin. It's the owner who seeks out the lost. You look back at verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost 
until he finds them. And look back again at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house diligently until she finds it? You see, what's the problem? The problem is the sheep will never come to its senses. The sheep is doomed unless it's rescued. And the coin doesn't have the capacity to return to its owner. Like the sheep without Jesus, we do not have the wisdom to return to God. The Bible refers to us, apart from Jesus, as fundamentally Foolish, not wise. And like the coin, without Jesus, we do not have the capacity to return to God because we're dead. We're foolish and we're spiritually dead, and so there's no hope for us unless someone comes to the rescue Romans 3.11 says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. We are all hopeless unless a search party comes out looking for us, coming to find us in our lostness, to bring us back to our owner. The good news is God came in Jesus over 2,000 years ago. He left the 99 to seek out the one. And if you have received Jesus this morning, if you know Jesus, you have salvation, you have been sought out by Almighty God. He came looking for you. You may have experienced it as you seeking out God, but the Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. You were sought out in your lostness, in your foolishness, in your deadness, and He came for you. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This was the mission statement of Jesus. Now, as Jesus explains each parable, he highlights that the sinner, upon being found by God, repents. Now, what does it mean to repent? To repent means to respond positively to the gospel message. It means you stop straying from God and you return to Him through faith in Jesus. You run away from sin and you run toward your Creator. 
This is what it means to repent. It's a, a change of mind, a change of heart. You see sin for the destructiveness that it is, and you turn to God as the infinitely satisfying fountain of life. Now, repentance is not a work that we do to earn our salvation. You might say, oh, is that the one thing that I have to do? I have to uh, do the work of repentance and then I earn my salvation? But Ephesians 2.8.9 says that it's by grace alone so that no one can boast. It's not by our works. Repentance is not a work that we do to earn salvation. It's the result of God's work of seeking us out, finding us, and revealing the glory of Jesus to us so that we see Him for the prize that He is and we repent. It's when we hear the gospel. Now, I want you to notice once a single sinner repents, the one lost sheep, the one lost coin, God celebrates together with the community of heaven. Look at verse 6 again. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Go down to verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one, one, one sinner who repents. Do me a favor and, and pop up those pictures again. These pictures just scratch the surface of the God-energized joy that shoots through heaven like rockets when one sinner repents. Just one from the four-year-old who prays to receive Jesus with his mom Celebration, cheers, joy, shouts of delight occur from that four-year-old all the way up to a 99-year-old, like a man named Tuffy, who went to my church. I remember preaching the gospel in one of the services and inviting people to stand if they'd never received Jesus Christ. And Tuffy would sit in the front row. And after every sermon, he almost always had tears in his eyes 
and, and multiple times said, that was the best sermon I ever heard. You know, and it was just like, it was encouraging because like he's 99 years old, you know. And, 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 and so there's Tuffy. And I give this invitation to receive Christ. And he stands at 99. You say, that person's too old. They're too set in their ways. They'll never come to Christ. When Tuffy was 70 years old, his wife on her deathbed made him promise to her that he would go to church. He started going to church at like 97 years old. I got a call from his sons when Tuffy was 101 years old. And they said, my dad's not going to make it much longer. And he was never baptized. He's on his deathbed. He would love for you to come over and baptize him. So I said, I'll be right over. And so there he was laying on his deathbed. And I sprinkled water over his head in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. His sons were all around. They're in their 70s. And I got a call three hours later. Tuffy went on to be with the Lord. Imagine the cheers and the laughter and the shouts of joy. Imagine the heart of Jesus, the angels, the saints of God in heaven every time <clears throat> they hear about a sinner repenting. I've recently experienced this joy of heaven myself. There's a, a very well-known sinner who has repented. His name is Kanye West. <clears throat> now let me say that I'm not naive. I know that false conversions are real. I used to be involved in prison ministry and false conversions are all over the place there. Everybody says they're born again. But I've looked into this topic of false conversions, of what it means to be saved. I've studied it for years. And I've looked deeply into Kanye West's story. And I have some inside information from the pastoral community. And I have every reason to believe that he has truly repented, that he truly knows Jesus Christ as his Savior. He says that he got saved back in April. I can tell you the pastor who was discipling him is rock solid. Like, this would be the guy that I would want to be discipling Kanye West, and he was discipling him. Kanye West has been doing events across our nation. He calls them Sunday services, where the name of Jesus is being praised throughout the entire service, and the gospel is being shared. Kanye has publicly renounced his usage of pornography. 
He says, pornography is evil. I don't want to engage in it anymore. He says, I want to stop my filthy language. In fact, I, I was watching him and he, some, some uh, curse words came out of his mouth and he stopped and he apologized on television for that language. He's even expressed the desire publicly for his wife, Kim Kardashian, to dress modestly. Kanye says that he reads his Bible every night and that his passion is to share the gospel with as many people as he could possibly share it. He also recognizes that he's a new convert. And he knows that not everything he says will be biblical. He, he knows that I'm, I'm probably going to say things that aren't right, and I'm going to try my best. You know, somebody said something to me years ago. They said, God doesn't wait for your theology to get perfect before he begins to use you. But as I've looked deeper and deeper into what God is doing in Kanye West, I've been overwhelmed with tears of joy and at times even sobbing because of the joy that God has been filling my heart with to see his work in another sinner who's repented. Kanye released a, a new album not that long ago called Jesus is King. And he said that he called it Jesus is king for the joy of hearing people have to repeat those words. He wanted to hear people in the media who would be talking about it say, oh, this new album, Jesus is king, uh, this Jesus is king. And he's like, yes, that's what I, and then I wanted to see it posted all across our country. I wanted to see Jesus is king. Look at this. This is in New York City. Jesus is king on this massive building. And here, here would be my encouragement. Pray for Kanye. Pray for God to keep surrounding him with godly leaders. Pray for him to be immersed in the word of God. Pray for the salvation of his wife, Kim Kardashian. And, and pray for our nation. We're a divided nation right now. We need to see that Jesus is king. And God is using Kanye as one of his vessels to spread that message. And I praise God for that. I celebrate that. And, and Anchor Church, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Be a church that celebrates when sinners repent. Be a church that is actively seeking out those in your family, those in your neighborhood, those you work with, even those who come to church who are still lost. Leave the 99 for the one. Let the joy of heaven spur you on for the joy that will come your way as you see sinners repent. And if you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sins, I want to invite you. Jesus paid for all of your sins on the cross. He was punished so you wouldn't have to be. He faced hell so you could escape hell. He died so that you could live. 
come to him by faith. He rose again from the dead, and everyone who believes in him will come back to life just like he did. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage of Scripture and how it reveals your heart for the lost. We all acknowledge, Lord, that we can be like Pharisees very quickly. God, would you help us to not be proud of our obedience. Help us to not place our identity in being better than other Christians. Help us to not self-righteously look down at other Christians who need patience and grace. Help us to discern when we're grumbling about other people who have pharisaical tendencies and help us to understand that we're doing the very same thing that we say we're against. Help us to be a humble people. God, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Help us to see how lost we were, but how loved we are. Help us to see, God, that you came for the one. You left the 99. God, would you help us to feel your individual love that you have for us today? Thank you for seeking us out, God. We were too foolish to seek you out. Thank you for seeking us out, God. We were dead without the capacity apart from your rescue. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you lift the veil of heaven? I pray right now, God, lift the veil of heaven and allow us to get a glimpse of the joy that occurs throughout heaven over one sinner who repents. Help us to see how valuable that lost person is in our lives, that difficult person is, that criminal is, Help us to see how precious they are to you. And God, would they be precious to us? Would we be your vessels to seek and save the lost? God, I I, want to invite you. I want to invite us to stand. Just stand. And I, I want to invite you, if, if, you would, if you would like to join, 
to just raise your hands up to God as we pray a prayer of surrender. Lord, I pray that you would work through us. Burden our hearts for the lost all around. Seek and save the lost through us. Give us your heart, God. It's not in us. We need a supernatural work of your amazing grace. Help us, God, to see how amazing your grace is in our lives so that we could bring it to others' lives and celebrate. Amazing.